Exodus 1, chapters 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Good morning, Rio Vista Church. How's everybody this morning? We had the uh, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. point where our oldest son came into the bedroom last night and says, Mom, I don't feel good. You know where that's going? So that's, that's the reason why Laura's not here this morning. I didn't wake up as, as typical dad. Um, <clears throat> So I'm feeling very rested and and charged up now. (laughs) She's watching on Facebook, I apologize. So we just started, last week we just started into this new series that's titled From Bondage to Freedom. And last week Tom talked about how even beginning in Genesis... The Bible expects us to understand certain things about Egypt, to understand certain things about Pharaoh... And so continuing on in that, one of the questions that you might have is as we're going into the Advent season, why are we in Exodus? And it is a beautiful, beautiful passage because what is it about the Advent season that we're doing? We are in a, in a world that's filled with heartache and slavery and death and things aren't as they should be and we, we cry out, we long for a deliverer, someone who will lead us out of the land of death and bondage. And as Tom preached last week, Egypt is the land of death and bondage. If I asked you right now, what comes to your mind when you think ancient Egypt? Probably one of the first things that comes to mind is, well, massive pyramids. Well, what are they? They're big tombs for dead people or mummies dead people, or a desert, a landscape that cannot sustain life, or if you go back into the ancient world, what was their equivalent of the Bible? It was called the book of the dead. Their king is marked with a crown that has a serpent on it. The great enemy of our faith, Egypt stands in the ancient world as the anti-gospel. It stands against the kingdom of God. And so when we pick up this passage that Nicole read this morning, we find Israelites that had been enslaved for nearly 400 years. Generation after generation, born, living out their life in slavery. And here's a heavy part and a hopeful part. 
God had come to Abraham before the slavery started and promised him, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. And so as that clock, as that calendar begins to tick away, glimmer of hope comes to the Israelites in Egypt. The 400-year mark is coming. Pharaoh is getting nervous. The Israelites are getting numerous. Even Pharaoh himself is worried that they might lead an uprising and overthrow this oppression. And so when he gives the order to, to Shifra and Pua, kill these babies when they're born. When you deliver these babies into the world, I want you to kill them And that glimmer of hope, trying to be snuffed out by this maniacal tyrant who wants to kill all of the baby boys so that they could never lead an uprising, why would Shifra and Pua say, no, I will not do it? And there's all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, maybe they had a moral compass. And just said, I can't do that. Maybe when you stop and consider that this is a very real thing, that they're being asked to deliver a baby into this world, to look into the eyes of the mother who has just delivered this baby, and then snuff that baby's life out. That is what Pharaoh is demanding of them. And maybe their compassion couldn't let them go there. But one of the reasons why I think Shifra and Pua could not do that, they had endured lives of slavery. In Egypt, in, in Pharaoh's hands, there was nothing to look forward to. There was no hope. And Pharaoh was coming and asking them to snuff out the source of hope. The chance that these babies, among them, might be a deliverer, that in numbers they might cast off this oppression. And for Shifra and Pua, the precious hope of redemption was worth the risk of death. Do you have something in your life, a hope that's worth your life, that's worth your, your death? That you can look at your circumstances in this life, the way that the world is broken, the way that you suffer slavery in different ways in this life, and you can say, I have this hope, and that hope is worth dying for. And so here's this prophecy given to Abraham, the 400 years ticking away. Is God going to remain true to His promise? Because the suffering is only intensifying God, please come. Please send a deliverer. And to understand what God, the, the message that God is giving to us in Exodus a little bit better, we have to ask ourselves, how did they get to this point? How did they get to Egypt in the middle of slavery and bondage? And the answer to that is the same way we get into slavery and bondage. To understand this, let's look back at Genesis. And if I were to ask you, what is Genesis all about? I think probably the first thing that most people think of is creation. It's a 50-chapter book, and most people would say, Genesis, that's creation. 
God made the heavens and the earth the six days. He rested on the seventh. Garden of Eden. That's two chapters of a 50-chapter book. Well, maybe it's the fall. That's one chapter. Chapter 3. Cain and Abel, that's one chapter. Chapter 4. How about Noah and the flood? That's only four chapters. What's precious, what takes up more than 75% of the book of Genesis from 39 chapters of a 50-chapter book is this. God's faithfulness to one family. A promise that starts with Abraham. And Genesis, the rest of Genesis is going to be God staying true and faithful to God's promise to Abraham and then to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob and then to his 12 sons that will become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the book of Genesis. It's this faithfulness. But as the story of the patriarchs play out, I want you to follow this pattern that happens again and again and again. And it's setting up a message for you that we see now full scale when we get to the book of Exodus. Let's start with Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Now there was a famine in the land. So you back up a little bit right before we get to this verse and God is saying, hey, I'm going to give you a nation and I'm going to give you descendants and I'm going to bless you. Pick up, leave Haran and all your wealth and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Abraham does that. He's faithful. He picks up, he goes, he gets to the promised land. This is where you called me, God. And there's famine in the land. You ever been there? You ever feel like this is exactly where God has called me? I was so confident. I know this is where he called me. And I get here and this is not easy, God. There's famine. I don't see all these wonderful things. And do I sit where you've called me? Do I trust that this is where you've called me? Or do I make my own way? Do I pick up and go down to Egypt? And Abraham does that. He goes down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine in the land was severe. And if you know the rest of the story, when Abraham goes down there, he meets calamity. His wife is taken into the harem of Pharaoh. A whole lot of things happen. She's held in captivity. So when your famine comes, this is the first instance we see when a famine comes and Abraham goes down to Egypt to the land of death and bondage. Calamity and captivity follow. Then we get to Abraham's son, Isaac. And in chapter 26, we're told now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And the Lord appeared to Isaac. And here he just flat out says it. Do not go down to Egypt. Trust me. Trust me. Stay where I've called you. Even though the famine surrounds you, trust me and the calling that I've given to you. And Isaac, even though this had to have been fearful, you read the rest of that story, and Isaac stays planted. He does not go down to Egypt, and he's blessed with crops a hundredfold. And then you get to Isaac's son, Jacob. Another famine. And we're told all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph, Jacob's son, who'd been betrayed and sold to Egypt. 
to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And if you know the rest of that story, because we're picking up on it in Exodus, what follows? Calamity and captivity. You pick up on a pattern here? When famine comes your way, when hunger for purpose, for fulfillment, when all of that stuff comes your way and you start panicking and you look to satisfy your soul in any which direction, the temptation, the natural temptation in all of us is to run down to Egypt. And when we run to any other source but the Lord, what happens? We find ourselves in slavery, don't we? You know, it's interesting when, when you think about what the Israelites did in their slavery. They did not build the pyramids. They weren't building statues to Pharaoh. They fled down to Egypt initially. And God used that and God blessed them and God saved them through Joseph's faithfulness. And then they got enslaved. And what are they enslaved doing? Don't miss the irony here. Exodus 1 says they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens and they built for Pharaoh storage cities. Storage cities devoted to stockpiling grain. Pethom and Ramses are the names of these cities. And so it's, it's almost as if they're saying, God, here's this famine. I don't trust where you've called me to, so I need to go fix it. And what do you know? They find themselves enslaved to stockpiling grain. You know, when I was in middle school, back when now parenting methods back then would now be considered abusive, and my dad was expert at these. But back in the day, if you were caught smoking a cigarette, what was the popular punishment 30 years ago? Ish. Yeah, they put you in a shed and they make you smoke the whole pack. Right? Someone's like, you're dead, what? Someone last service yelled out, eat them. It's like, whoa. But yeah, by the time you, on that, that one cigarette, that's pretty gross and that's not so good. You take down a whole pack. Blech. You don't want anything more to do with those. And it's almost like here you're chasing after grain. You're wanting to stockpile. You want to make sure. And now you're enslaved to building entire storage cities. Now that's not so sweet. It becomes bitter. It becomes gross. My own story when I was in sixth grade. I had brothers that played baseball. And they took pride in how much dip they could stick in their lip. And so they would walk around looking goofy, you know, with the lip way out. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, I couldn't do just dip leaves because they would get all over the place in my mouth and I would get sick. And so being brilliant as I was as a sixth grader, they came out with a product called Bandits, which is the tobacco leaves that are in like a tea bag that won't go all over your mouth. And so I put those in my lip and I'm walking down the hall because I'm hungry for people to say, wow, look at Sam. And I turned the corner and a family friend of ours who was the assistant vice principal at the school, Merle Lilliquist, who talked like this. Put the fear of God in you real quick. And he turns the corner and he looks at me and he says, Sam, I'm going to give you two options. Either you swallow whatever's in your lip 
Oh, we're going to go down to the office and we're going to call your parents. <laughs> and on the way to the clinic, I lost everything and I had to call my parents anyway. I would not have made a good Bethany student. I'm just going to throw that out there. Just going to throw that out there. But that's the reality. Whenever we want to taste a little taste of something to satisfy us, to give us identity and worth, it never does, does it? Never satisfies. And so what do we end up doing? We want more of it. Maybe more. Maybe more will help us. Hunger, whether it's a physical hunger in the midst of an actual famine or a spiritual hunger, when you're desperate for meaning, when you're longing for purpose and love and redemption, this unconditional love that the God, when you hunger for that, that level of hunger, any level of hunger can lead people to do some pretty desperate things, right? So what do we do? What's, we run down to the Egypt of wealth. We run to the, the Egypt of addiction or pornography or people-pleasing or career advancement. Anything that might satisfy us. What's, what's, your, what's in Egypt for you? What are you thinking? If I could just do this, if I could just have this, it would satisfy me that you chase after. That now is starting to feel like slavery because you can't ever get enough to satisfy you. They enslave you into the mindset that you simply need more of it. More alcohol, more pills, more money, more enrollment, better grades. If I can just do X, Y, Z, if I could just have this, it would satisfy me. And the more you chase it, the more miserable you feel because the more you chase it, the more elusive it seems. But now it's your identity. You can't stop. How do you walk away from it? And suddenly you find you're building storage cities. You're enslaved. This world has its claws in you, but the storage cities won't save you. And death will come and take all of your achievements away. You know, when God finally does lead the people out of Egypt... It's like he's leading them on this detox program, right? There's a famine and they have a hard time trusting and they run down to Egypt to fulfill and when he and they're building storage cities and slavery just stockpiling. And when he takes them out of Egypt, what does he do? He takes them into a desert where there is no food. They wander around in a wilderness where there's no hope for sustenance and what does he do? I'm going to give you one day's manna at a time. I'm going to leave you with no option but to trust me in the midst of the famine. I will be faithful. I will take care of you. Trust me for your daily bread. 
Stop building storage cities in the land of Egypt. There's, and, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, doesn't He say, do not store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where the moth eats and the rust destroys. And when He teaches us how to pray, what do we pray for? We ask for our daily bread. I am not going to be enslaved chasing after the things of the world. I want to be able to rely on You and You alone, Lord. And the faithful Hebrew slaves that never had a Sabbath when they were in Egypt. There was never a day off. There was, there was never any hope. I mean, especially if you were well before that 400 year period. There was no hope. You were a slave from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. There was no hope in this world, but I love now that we're getting into archaeology and I'm reading some of this stuff and seeing some of this stuff. I love what we can see with our own eyes because Shifra and Pua are real people. The slaves were real people. Their prayers were real and filled with hurt and pain and suffering and longing. Lord, deliver us from the land of death and bondage. Here's some of the graves that they found in, in Ramses, which is one of the slave cities that we learn about in Exodus 1.11, where it says they built store cities, Ramses and Pithom. And you notice one of the things when the archaeologists came across this image, they, they said immediately, this is not an Egyptian burial. We know that. This is very clearly a Semitic person, a Semite. Do you know how they knew that? How are Egyptians buried? On their back, if they're of nobility with their arms crossed, always in a stretched posture. But when you go up into the land of Canaan where the Hebrews come from, when you die, your loved ones put you into your grave in a fetal posture. See that? Why fetal? Because they looked forward to a new birth. A sleeping posture with the hands coming up under the chin. Why a sleeping posture? Because after a life of suffering and misery, they expected a Redeemer to come and awake them into glory. These are people with a hope of resurrection. To the right, you see a papyrus, copy of a papyrus that's actually housed in the Brooklyn Museum. Of the 77 names that are listed out, this belonged to an Egyptian slave master, and it's a record of all of his slaves. And of the 77 names listed, and I want you to think, those are real people who spent, spent their lives in slavery in Egypt. Of the 77, 48 of them are Semitic. Really cool. You know what one of those names are? Shifra. Is it the midwife? Same name. I don't know. Could be. But somebody named Shifra spent their whole life in servitude, slavery, begging for God to come and redeem them. You go to the archaeological remnants of Pithom, and you can see the circular remnants of what were silos where they would store grain. And when the first person who excavated it, Sir William Petrie, came there in 1905, one of the troubling things that he came across... Now, this is one of the slave cities, right? Up in the top corner to the right, you see that smashed jar that's at the base of a wall. 
he found a number of these spread out all over Pithom. And this is an infant burial jar. Inside that jar, they found an infant that had been slain. And he was dumbfounded. And he actually writes in his report on the excavations of Pithom, this couldn't have been Egyptian. It had to have been from Syrian occupation or something because the Egyptians did not kill babies. Exodus 1 tells you differently. Interestingly, these infant burial jars are littered around slave cities. And so stop for a moment and get real here. Inside that jar was a baby. And that baby was ripped from her mom's arms. That mom cried real tears. That mom cried out to God real desperate prayers. Shifra and Pua stood against this and said the hope of this coming to an end was worth risking death. So you go to the excavations at Ramses or Avaris. Avaris is buried under Ramses. That's where the Hebrews were enslaved. And this guy, Dr. Manfred Bittak from the University of Vienna, is not a believer, by the way. But when he uncovers and starts digging into the strata from this era when Moses would have been alive, what does he find? He finds that this was a massive storage city. Silos, when he draws the city, silos all over the place. These massive silos that were devoted to the storage of grain. He writes about how under the streets, you see this on the right-hand side, that under the streets were these caves lining under the streets and under the houses where they would store even more grain. And he writes that at least 30 grain silos in this particular portion of the city you were used to store enormous quantities of grain for a considerable number of people. And he says it could have been a military facility for supplying Egypt's troops. And so these storage cities are real. The slaves that build them were real. Their tears were real. And what's next, which is my favorite of these slides, is also very real. As he continues digging and excavating, he comes across something that totally blows his mind. He sees evidence of huge populations of slave quarters that spread out all over Ramses and all over Pithom, these poor dwellings. But then, he says the archaeological material stops abruptly. The most likely interpretation is that Avaris was abandoned. No conflagration, destruction, lair. There's no corpses of slain soldiers that have been found. And so let me translate. There's no fire. There's no natural disaster. There's no conquest, no war. This slave city is merely abandoned. And all this massive slave population that has built a storage facility that's big enough to take care of Pharaoh's army, that population of slaves, gone. Sounds like maybe a... An exodus. And when Manfred Bittek then goes to Pithom, he's the lead archaeologist, when he goes to Pithom, he writes something very similar where he says, there, were a lar- there was a large silo constructed of mud bricks, a larger group of people in small huts with very thin walls. In other words, they were exceptionally poor slaves. 
He noted that the city was abandoned between the reign of Thutmosis III and that of Ramses II, the precise time of Moses. And Ramses, abandoned. Pithom, all the slaves, gone. See, just as real as those tears were. The longing, the desperation. (laughs) Our God heard those prayers. He saw those tears. He came for His people. He called them out of the land of death and bondage. It's remarkable His faithfulness. And so, what's the source of your tears? What's the source of your hunger? What's the source of your longing? Because we go from the days of Shifra and Pua and the Pharaoh and the Exodus and we fast forward 1,500 years and we find an echo. Jesus will come into the world after 400 years of silence with no prophet, with foreign oppression, with people crying out desperate for salvation. He'll be met by a tyrant who goes and sends his troops to Bethlehem to put the baby boys to death. Do you hear the echo there? The wise men that he sends to Bethlehem and says, come back to me so that I can go worship this new king. They fear God. Their hope of redemption is worth too much and they risk death in the face of King Herod to preserve the chance of redemption. Do you hear that? Lots of tears and prayers and longing for the one who would come to deliver his people from a kingdom of death and bondage. A hero who would overthrow the crown, the kingdom of the serpent. And in these painful centuries, the prophet Amos predicted a crushing famine that would come. There it is again. But Amos says this famine is going to be different. He writes this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord This is going to be a spiritual famine. A famine where you're desperate for hope. Where you're disconnected from God. Where you're desperate for meaning. All of that. And there's going to be a famine. This intense dry spell. Where they just can't get redemption. And Advent is where we enter into those cries. It's where we long and and we celebrate not only the fact that Jesus was faithful that He came, but that He's coming again, that He's coming to wipe away all of our tears, that He's coming to put an end to our slavery. He's coming to satisfy our hearts eternally. We don't have famines of bread and water, but each of us knows what it's like to slave away chasing the idols, anything that might fill us for a moment. And this deliverer comes and Jesus comes and He says, Come to Me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. 
For I am gentle and humble in heart. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. He's calling us out of slavery. And I love this, this famine of the Word of God, this famine that's so crushing, this famine, by the way, that all of us have experienced, all of us have this hunger, is ultimately put to rest. And I love the way that God ordains the coming of His Son. Mary and Joseph get called into a census. And so they've got to leave Nazareth and go back to the birthplace of their ancestors, where King David came from and their genealogy. So they have to go back to Bethlehem. And they just make it just in time in Bethlehem, but there's no room for them in the inn. And so they have to be put out in a stable inside a cave. And Jesus, who has no crib, is laid down in a manger that was reserved to feed the flock. And what I want you to hear in this, you're hungering. You're longing. Longing for something to satisfy. And in the sovereignty of God, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. He comes to enter into our pain. And as sovereignty would have it, He's going to be born in Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means the house of bread. And he's going to be laid into a manger. What is a manger? It is a feeding trough for the flock. And here we come to the end of our famine with the Savior of the world laid up in a feeding trough for the flock. And it's as though God is coming and saying, the famine is over. Your slavery is over. Here lies the bread of life, my only begotten Son, whom I'm offering up to satisfy your souls. Come and feast. All your other pursuits will leave you hungry and empty. Here He is. Come and feast on the bread of life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He will break your chains. He will get rid of the famine that leads us to go down to Egypt in search of anything that might fill us. My goodness, the God of the universe has looked at us and said that your value, your purpose, your identity is so extreme that you are worth the life of His Son. There is no need to chase down to Egypt to look for meaning and fulfillment. Feast on the most amazing gift that God has ever given to humanity. His Son, who came into the world not to praise and adulation, who left the glories and throne and wealth and comforts and praises of heaven to come into this world in weakness and in poverty and in rejection. The one who comes to take your sins upon himself, to take all of your hunger pains and to satisfy you perfectly, to go to the cross, to take all your sin, to take your death, and clothe you in righteousness to satisfy your soul perfectly and eternally. And when we come to Christmas, as our eyes look to every all the distractions that we face, look to the feast that God has invited us to share in and be satisfied in Him. Let's pray. 
Father, Lord, I thank you so much for how wonderful you are. Lord, I confess there are so many times where I want to chase down to Egypt. I want to find something that can fill me for just, just a moment. But you give me something far better. You give me yourself. You are my prize. You are my reward. Help me to see you as precious. Help me to know that the best way that I can glorify you is to be satisfied in you, to see your goodness, to taste and see that you are good. And to stop venturing down to Egypt, but to draw near to you and all that I do. I pray, Lord, that you would be with each member of this congregation and their families as we come into this awesome celebration of the time when you came into this world to to be with us, God with us. You are so good. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.